He is Lord. Now, uh, I'm going to go over in the next few weeks. I'm just going to I'm going to do a series. That I'm just calling things every Christian should know. Now, some of this is going to be <clears throat> what we would call basic, but we have so many people recommitting to Christ, giving their hearts to Christ. I want to lay a foundation for them. But here's also what I believe will happen. Old truth never gets old. If it's God's truth, it never really gets old. It's fresh. And I think it's good to refresh on just some of the basics of the faith. And I want to talk to you about today about one of the real basics, and that is the Lordship of Christ. Jesus is Lord. Now, how many of you believe he's Lord? Amen. So we're going to talk about the Lordship of Christ. I want to read to you three verses out of Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. This is some of my favorite passages. And let's look at this. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Now, I want you to read this next part with me because it is so profound. And realize as we read this, this is a prophecy. Okay? Because look what's going to happen in the future. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, there is a day coming. There is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue confess and I'm excited about that. What a profound thought. And so based on that, let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of God, for the word of God. I pray that you will give us a fresh and a crisp understanding of the Lordship of Christ today. And that, Lord, you will help us to move ever closer underneath that banner of Lordship that we might experience the true freedom that comes from Jesus as Lord. Now, you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to my heart today. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to your neighbor and tell him he is Lord. He is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Now, let me give you a simple definition of the Lordship of Christ. And this is something we should all understand. Every Christian should know. Uh, When you talk about the Lordship, here's what it means. Jesus rules supreme over every area of your life. It's that simple. Jesus is the boss over every area of your life. That's Lordship. All right? Now, let me specify so we can really get it. That means he's rules supreme over your finances, over your relationships, over your sex life, over your lifestyle. He rules supreme. In every one of those areas, we ought to, we ought to have a, a little banner there that says he is Lord. He's Lord of my life. So I'm not and he is. All right? Now, we might say that Jesus is the boss. The buck really stops with him. When we've got a major decision, he's Lord. The Bible says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He wants to. So he's Lord. He's Lord, Lord over our, the direction we take. He's Lord over the people we run with. He's Lord over our lifestyle. He's Lord over everything. And what I've noticed in the Bible is that the Bible never represents a person coming to Christ as Savior without also embracing His Lordship. It's not there. If He's Savior, He's Lord. And so you got to wonder, if He's he's not Lord, is He Savior? 
based on what you find in the New Testament. It was understood. Well, if he's my Savior, he's also my Lord now. So he's the boss over my life. And that's, that's a heavy thing. That's why Jesus said you've got to pick up your cross daily and follow him, denying yourself and putting him first. That's lordship. Now, here's another thing about that. I've noticed that you never really experience the full joy and power and life that Christianity is supposed to offer to us unless he's Lord. In other words, there are things held back by God if we continue going our own way and we don't walk submitted to him as Lord. So he ought to be Lord of relationships, Lord of finances, Lord of everything. And when he is, that's when we experience the life of God being poured out. And that is when our mind is renewed. There's no renewing of the mind without lordship. It says, I, present, I, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, watch this, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1, that you present your bodies to him an acceptable sacrifice, which is your reasonable service. Now watch. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But what preceded renewing? Giving your body an acceptable sacrifice, which is a picture of total surrender. There you go. A lot of Christians flat out miss this. I think there's so much weak preaching anymore in the pulpit. And I I love pastors. I, I do. And I'm not slamming any pastors. I would never say a name. But there's so much preaching so-called preaching from pulpits that don't talk about dying to yourself, that don't talk about submission to lordship, that don't talk about picking up your cross daily. But picking up your cross daily on the other side of that is the life Jesus promised. It's a fact. Jesus one time looked his followers in the eye and he talked about lordship. Here's what he said. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things which I say? I don't think there was a big amen from that group because he wanted to know, hey, we got, we, got a, we got a discrepancy here. You're calling me Lord, but you're not doing what I say. So if you're not doing what I say, why call me Lord? The good news is, like I said, on the other side of Lordship is the real life. It is, it is where that waters of the spirit of life bubble up from inside of us. It's where we experience genuine freedom See, you never get free in Christ until you're the slave of Christ. And isn't it funny, in Christianity, slavery equates into freedom. Servant means slave. Doulos, that's the Greek word. Doulos means slave. So we are his servants, and when you come under his his lordship, that's when you experience true freedom. The shackles fall off, the flesh is broken, the power of temptation is subdued, and you walk in the newness of life on the other side of servanthood. Now, let me give you a fact of life. Somebody or something will control your life. Put it another way, something dominates everybody's day. Something drives you every day. Is it selfish desires, the pursuit of money, pleasure, popularity, the things the world chases after? Lust of the eyes, flesh, and pride of life. Is that what drives you? Or godly desires, which is the pursuit of his will and putting a smile on God's face. That's what the real believer, the genuine born-again believer wants to do. So listen to Peter here. This is powerful. Peter said that God's will for us is that we no longer should live the rest of our time on earth in the flesh for the lusts of men. 
That's the will of God. But for the will of God. But for the will of God. There it is right up there. That we no longer should live the rest of our lives in the flesh. Once you're saved, you need to have a, a, a moment of goodbye. You need to have a, a, a final meeting with those lusts of the flesh and say, all right, I don't serve you anymore. Now I'm going to serve the will of God. And when you say, I'm going to serve the will of God and no longer the lusts of men, then you have experienced a break point, a defining moment when you have stepped over a chasm, you have stepped over a barrier, you have stepped over things that are holding you back from God, and now you're saying, the most important thing to me is the will of God above all else. Peter said, that's the will of God for every believer. Goodbye to the lusts of men, hello to the will of God. Picking up my cross daily, denying myself, following him. Jesus demands total control of our life. Did you know that? And he can do that. He's the only one who can do that, but he demands total control of our life. Now, let me tell you why lordship matters. I really just just said it. Lordship, until that issue of lordship and being submitted to his will is settled, you're never going to advance any further in the kingdom of God. You won't grow. You won't grow spiritually. How many of you want to grow spiritually? Amen. I do too. I want to bring forth love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith, all the fruits of the Spirit. I want to experience that. But guess what? It's not going to happen until I submit to the Lordship of Jesus. That's the break point. That's the defining moment. The Christian life begins at the starting gate of Lordship. That's where it begins. Now, let me, let me deal with the question of the ages. Here, here's a question everybody's asking, even today in our culture, it's everywhere. Here it is. Who is Jesus? Who was and is Jesus really? And why in the world should I surrender my life to Jesus? Why? Why should I? You tell me why I should. Preacher up there, those of you watching my streaming video or listening on radio, you say, why should I do this? Why can't I live my own life? Because you never live your own life. You're either under the control of Satan, according to the word of God, and you're living according to the lust of the flesh, eyes, and pride of life, or you are submitted to Christ. But you are never your own person. Never. You're, you're under one yoke or the other. And that's a fact. Now, what's happening in our day is people are... are Creating Jesus in their own image. Sometimes I want to say, would the real Jesus please stand up? I'm going to tell you where you find him. You find him in the red ink in this Bible. That's where you find the real Jesus. But out there, there is so much convoluted information about who Jesus really is. Uh, People are just creating their own Jesus, what they wish he were, not what he actually is. Now, I'm going to tell you, I have a longing to worship the real Jesus, follow the real Jesus. Uh, be taught by the real Jesus, glorify the real Jesus, live for the real Jesus, die for the real Jesus. I want to serve the real Jesus, not a Jesus somebody makes up. But a lot of that's going on in our day. People create Jesus in their own image. Let me give you a couple of examples. For instance, last Easter week, I really did see this. I'm not making this up. Last Easter week, I actually saw a poster, a big poster, that somebody had made of Jesus smoking pot. Jesus had a joint in his hand. So what are they after? They're after a Jesus who approves of their lifestyle. 
They want a pot-smoking, drugging Jesus or a Jesus who will smile on what they're doing. I think the poster came from Colorado. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm sure there's plenty of those out in Colorado. Nothing against Colorado. We love Colorado. But these days, you need to put on a mask and walk down some streets in Colorado. Now, that's one example. Here's another one. I've read articles, several articles, where Jesus was portrayed as gay. What are they saying? We want a Jesus in our own image, a Jesus that approves of our lifestyle. May God have mercy on their soul. I've seen depictions of black Jesuses, red Jesuses, white, effeminate-looking Jesuses, and, and the list goes on, all kinds of different Jesuses, the kind of Jesus, the Jesus you want. The fact is, Jesus was none of these. You want to know what Jesus probably really looked like? Let me tell you what he probably really looked like. The real Jesus was an olive-skinned Jewish man, likely with short hair. He didn't have this long, brown, wavy hair that any woman would envy. He didn't have that. He didn't have that perfect, handsome, Gentile face with the blue eyes. That's somebody making Jesus in their own image. He probably had short black hair and the typical long, curly sideburns that if you go to Israel and go to the Wailing Wall, you will see Jews everywhere wearing their hat, and they've got the short black hair and the long, curly sideburns. That's the way they do it now, and that's the way they wore it then. And Jesus was a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. That's why it's so crazy to be anti-Semitic. I'm going to pop another bubble. He was not handsome. As the typical artistic renderings show him to be. You want to know what Jesus looked like? I don't know, but I can tell you this. He was not a looker. He was not handsome. Isaiah predicted this about the Messiah Jesus. He said, there is nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. So when you look at Jesus physically, you were not drawn to his looks, although I believe his eyes nailed you. I think to look in the eyes of Jesus was looking into the eyes of God incarnate. Jesus could look at you and pick you up out of a ditch, or he could look at you and put you down. He read your mail when he looked at you. He knew your life before you said one word to him. Jesus was no doubt a rugged, Man's man, blue-collar worker, accustomed to long, intensive hours of manual labor in wood and with stone. He was tough. He was strong. He was sinewy. He was in shape. He was used to walking many miles in the hot Judean sun, so likely his skin was sun-baked and weathered-looking, even though he was in his 30s. So, in summary, on the physical side, Jesus was likely well-built, olive-skinned, imposing specimen with nothing outstanding about his looks. Not anything like what we see in most pictures. That's Jesus. But you know, I'm not really concerned about the way he looked. I want to know who he was on the inside. Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? The real Jesus. Why are we here today? What's Christianity all about? Why can we really say we have something better, superior to any other religion, though I don't consider Christianity a religion? It's not. It was never intended to be. It's a relationship made possible by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But still, he's considered a religion. So if you want to look at the real Jesus, I want to tell you he was anything but normal or typical. Anything but. John proclaims Jesus Christ was the Son of 
God. And then in Hebrews, he's called God the Son. So he was all man, all God, all God, all man. He was both, yet without sin. Nobody like Jesus in the history of the world. Nobody. Matthew tells us he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So his birth was absolutely, totally supernatural. And both John and Hebrews say that he lived a perfect life, sinless life. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. That's why when Jesus hung on the cross, he could die for our sins because he was guiltless. He had none of Adam's sin because Adam, he didn't come from Adam. He came from God, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And he had no personal sin because he never committed a sin. So he died the perfect sacrifice for our sins, the sacrificed lamb. He died on the cross, which made full payment for all of our sins. There was only one currency at the bar of God that could forgive our sins, get the judgment of God off of us, and deliver us from the consequences of sin against God. And that currency was the red blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrificed lamb. That's it. And... Three days later, he physically rose from the dead as we celebrated last week. He rose from the dead, triumphant over death, hell, and the grave. So watch this. The life of Jesus is sandwiched in between two miracles, a virgin's womb and an empty tomb. His birth was miraculous. His death and resurrection were completely miraculous. He was a totally miraculous man. He was not like anyone else. He was totally different. He was not normal, and I mean that in the best sense of the word. And now where is he? Well, he's at the right hand of God and he's praying for everyone in this room right now. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints according to Hebrews 7.25. And here's the great news. The same Bible that predicted his birth, his death, and his resurrection predicted that he would come again. He ascended back to heaven in front of his disciples. And after he had disappeared in the clouds, the Bible says, an angel appeared and said to the disciples, this same Christ who ascended in front of you will also one day descend again. He will return to the same place, to the Mount of Olives, and that day is near. I believe he is at the door. He's at the door. Now, when you talk about a person like this, that is, that is why Jesus can actually require our submission to his lordship. He demands our worship and his obedience because he's God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the word was God. So God put on flesh, wrapped himself in skin, and became one of us. Felt our pain. Got dirt on him. Worked, sweated. Ate normal food. Lived a life, but without sin. Became one of us. Wept over us. Prayed over us reached out to us, and ultimately died for us. And that leads me to why I think we ought to refresh on why why Jesus had to come in this really essentially a rescue mission. So you don't need a rescue mission unless somebody needs rescuing. An ambulance doesn't go unless somebody's in trouble. An ambulance is on a rescue mission, and so was Jesus. When you see an ambulance rushing by and everybody gets out of the way, you say, I need to get out of the way because what he's doing is important. He's on a rescue mission. So was Jesus. He was on a rescue mission. 
Sirens going, lights flashing. He came. Why did he do it? Well, you go back to the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, you have Adam and Eve, and they really were there. There really wasn't Adam and Eve. And you say, well, Pastor, I don't believe that. I'm an evolutionist. Well, you can be an evolutionist, but eventually you've got to agree that finally evolution spat out a man and a woman. Now, here's the problem with that, and this is free. Here's the problem with that. I'm, not, I'm just being real serious here. Those of you that, that think evolution is valid, there is no transitional form from whatever man was before, ape or whatever. There's no transitional form showing the transitions that led to Adam and Eve. It's never been discovered. Can I blow your mind and tell you that evolution is not even settled science? Now you say, well, yes it is because it was taught me in school. I know it was taught you in school. But it doesn't have a leg to stand on. <clears throat> you say, boy, Jeff, that, that's pretty strong words. I know. But if you think about evolution logically, just put religion out of it. Think about it logically. It makes no sense. You are proposing something absolutely preposterous that all of this came from a single amoeba crawling out of some ancient sea. God said, let there be. And it makes sense. Now, if that offends you, I'm sorry, but I'm the one up here and you're not. I'm kidding. If that offends you, no, seriously, if it offends you, I understand because I used to embrace evolution. But study it. Go go and read. And it's, uh, it's failed science. Anyway, when Adam and Eve were created, they sinned against God. And when they sinned against God, here's... How you explain all the crime, all the death, all the mayhem. When they sinned against God, sin entered the human race. Listen to this. When Adam sinned, says Romans 5 verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone for everyone sinned. So when Adam sinned, being the head of the human race, it was trickled down guilt. Guilt by association. And so we experienced... Guilt because Adam sinned, but also guilt because we ourselves have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. We have all fallen short. We've all missed the mark. We've all broken God's law. We're all guilty before God. Yet God in His great mercy, thank God for the mercy of God, He promised to send a Savior way back in the Garden of Eden when He found Adam and Eve hiding and He called everybody together, Adam and Eve and the devil, He told all three of them, the day is going to come, I'm going to send the seed of the woman and he is going to bruise your head, Satan, and you're going to bruise his heel. And there, way back then, God predicted the cross when the spikes went through the heel of Jesus. And he said, when those spikes go through the heel of my Messiah, then it is going to bruise Satan's head. It's going to destroy the power of the devil, the death hell and the grave that he is in charge of is going to destroy it. That was God's prediction. And then as many, many centuries went by after the Garden of Eden, man went through the, the, through the flood and the Tower of Babel and dispersion throughout the whole earth and all the crime and all the difficulty and all the darkness that covered the planet because of sin. It, then it finally came to pass. Galatians 4, 4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. 
and fulfilled his promise. Then by Jesus' death on the cross, he broke the power of sin over everyone who places their faith in him. And he's the only one who can. Peter said, Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. It never needs to happen again. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. Aren't you glad he brought you safely home? Amen. Now the Bible records that when Jesus died on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Those were his last words. And he gave up his spirit. You know what that's really saying? It is finished. Let me give you three more words. Paid in full is what he meant. He meant paid in full. He paid the full price to buy us out of Satan's ownership so that we could be God's very own. He paid the price. So when he said it is finished, he was saying, my blood has been shed. I never sinned. I am the son of God. I have now paid the price. Now, anybody who looks to me in faith is going to be forgiven and they're going to have the power of sin broken off of their life because of what I did. He did two more powerful things on the cross. The first thing we call it redeemed, redemption. Redeem means to buy us back. Redeem means buy back. You're buying something back. Something that was lost from you, you're buying it back. Jesus bought us back from Satan's control and dominion and brought us to himself. Secondly, his shed blood atoned for our sins. Now let me help you understand atonement. When I say atonement, think of three words. At one meant. Atonement, A-T-O-N-E-M-E-N-T, Let's break it up. At one meant. Here's what that means. When Jesus' blood was shed, when you look to him in faith, Jesus takes your hand in God's hand and he joins them into one. And we are reconciled back to God at one with God. At one meant. Atonement. His blood atoned for our sins. Amen. That's good news. Now, it really gets even better. You know, you can get excited about the cross of Christ. It gets even better. Because not only did it redeem us, buy us back, and atone for us, put us back at one with God, but through Jesus Christ, God has entered into an unbreakable covenant with us. Can I tell you that our God is a covenant God? He's not a maybe so, hope so, perhaps so, gee, I might stay with you and I might not. He's not like people. Amen? Isn't that good news? How many of you have ever been betrayed by somebody? Walked out on by somebody? All right? Here's what he says. I will never walk out on you. I will never fail you. I will never forsake you because I'm entering into a covenant with you. And here's what covenant means. It is the promise to be faithful. That's what covenant means. The promise to be faithful. Everybody that has a Bible, hold it up with me today, would you? Hold up your Bible. Now, I want you to realize that what you're holding in your hand is two covenants that God made the old covenant and the new covenant, but covenant God's promise that he would be faithful to you and to me. Now, can I tell you the new covenant is way better than the old covenant. I am so glad we live in the time of the, the red ink and the new Testament, the times of Jesus, because before Jesus came, they were in the old covenant and it was not near as good, but thank God the new covenant says I will never leave you, never fail you, never forsake you, never walk out on you. When everybody else walks out, I will walk in. I will never turn you aside. I will never give up on you. I will never turn you away. That's the promise of God. 
God promises to be ever faithful to us, and we promise to be ever faithful to him. We give him our lives, and he gives us his, but it gets even better than that. We give, here's the trade of the universe. Are you ready? We give him our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. We give him our sorrow, he gives us his joy. We give him our dead spiritual life, and he gives us his living spiritual life. We give him our sin, he gives us his righteousness. What a trade. Do you know that the Bible says that this covenant that we're in is better? The book of Hebrews tells us 12 times that the new covenant is better than the old. I'm not afraid. We got a class going on right now. We call officially comparative religions, but what it really is showing why Christianity is superior to all the others. And it is, and I'm not afraid to say it because it's the only one that really leads you to God and it's better. Can everybody say the word better? When you came to Jesus, you got a better thing. He's better than drugs, better than alcohol, better than going your own way, better than living your own life, better than any sin the devil can give to you. He's better, better. Amen. Now, let me tell you another reason it's better. It's better because Jesus comes to live inside of us by the power of the Holy Spirit when we turn to him. That did not happen to the people in the old covenant. When you say, Lord, come into my life, forgive me of my sin, he sends his spirit into you and you are marked as a child of God. It's the seal of ownership and you are signed, sealed, and delivered. As far as God's concerned, you are seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ and that's better. That's better. I'll tell you another reason it's better. Because he calls us to a life that we could never live in our own strength. But he says, I'm going to help you with that because this is a better covenant. So it says, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Philippians 2.13. That means when you come to Jesus, he puts his spirit inside of you. And that Holy Spirit living inside of you changes your desires. Gives you divine want to do. In other words, when you were lost, were you concerned about pleasing God? Did you want to go to church? Did you ever want to open up this Bible and read it when you were lost? No. But when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you, he births, he creates, he launches divine, heavenly, godly desires that begin to drive us instead of the flesh. And then he gives you the power to realize those desires. Better. Everybody say better with me again. Now, we just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus Christ last weekend. And one thing I want us to get today is this. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was God validating his ministry. See, if, if he hadn't gotten up, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be here. Paul said you'd still be in your sins. You'd still be without hope. You'd still be without God. You would not have salvation. You wouldn't be redeemed. You would not have the Holy Spirit living inside of you if he had not risen from the dead. But when he rose from the dead, God validated everything he said and everything he did. Listen to what the Bible says. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. When he was resurrected, he was declared to be everybody, everything he said he was when he was raised from the dead. Now, here's the deal. Because of his mighty resurrection, Jesus claims lordship over 
all people. That's an amazing thing. Listen to this. To this end, Christ died and rose again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So, Jeff, how can you be Lord of the dead? Because their souls are still alive. Their souls are still there. Though their bodies are dead, their souls are still there, still waiting to meet God. And who are they going to go in front of, whether they were lost or saved? They're going to go in front of Jesus Christ because he's Lord of both the dead and the living. At the great white throne judgment, everybody who has ever lived is going to be brought up before Christ himself because he's Lord of both the dead and the living. You know what I love about this? Hitler's knee is going to bow and his tongue is going to confess. Watch this. Mussolini's knee is going to bow. His tongue is going to confess. Every mocker of Jesus Christ who mocks him today, makes fun of him today, and persecutes his people, that person is going to have to bow their knee and confess with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, here's what really gets me excited. The Bible says that even those under the earth are going to have to bow the knee and confess. That means Satan himself is going to have to bow. Amen. Satan himself, the liar of liars, the ruiner of lives, the the enslaver of the human soul, the hater of God, the blasphemer of all time, he's going to have to bow his crooked knee and say with his crooked tongue the only true thing he's ever said, he is Lord. Amen. I hope I get to watch that. I mean, I really hope I get to watch that. Satan. He's the Lord. Mm, This is so powerful. Only those who bow to his lordship now are promised eternal life then. It's simple terms. In him we have redemption. Only through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. How are you saved? Only through the blood. Jeff, I have really good intentions. I don't want to be a Christian, but I I love God and I I have good intentions. I'm doing good things, helping people, living my life the best I know how. So isn't God going to honor that? No. No. Not according to Jesus. No. Well, how come? I'm I'm basically a good person. No. You sinned, I've sinned. The only way to come into right standing with God. In him we have redemption only through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. I've been there trying other ways. I tried transcendental meditation, all that Buddhism stuff. I went out in the woods one day after I read a book about how to meditate and become one with the universal rhythm of nature. So I went out to the woods to try it, got my little lotus position and did this and started saying "Om" over and over and over. And suddenly something started biting me. And I looked and I was covered with ants. I got ants in my pants is all I got out of transcendental meditation. It did not put me in touch with God. But when I said, Jesus, forgive me, something happened. Can you say with me, I'm not my own. Let me close with a mind-blowing truth about lordship. This settles the issue of lordship. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize Paul writes to church people 
that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God. Now look at these next few words. Read them with me. You do not belong to yourself. Now that just obliterates this whole thing of it's my body and I'll do what I want with it. No, it's not. You do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, the currency of the blood. So you must honor God with your body. Now that settles lordship right there. I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I can't go do my own thing. Don't want to go live. God, because he's Lord, can interrupt me anytime he wants, inconvenience me anytime he wants. Because he's Lord. And I'm not. I'm going to close with an illustration. Let's say today you had a $25,000 check. Wouldn't that be nice? I wish I had one to give you. But, but walk with me now. $25,000 check. And, and you say, wow, I came into this money. $25,000 check. I'm going to go get a new car. So you head to the dealership and you pick out a new car that you can pay cash for. Wouldn't that be sweet? Cash for. So you slap down a $25,000 check on a new car. And... You tell the salesman, get it washed for me, get it ready. And the salesman says, I'll do more than that. I'll bring it to your house. Wow. So you drive home in the old clunker. You're about ready to trade off. You've got a new car coming. You're excited. You tell the kids, you tell the neighbors, I've got a new car and it's all paid for. And a couple hours later, uh, the doorbell rings and there's the salesman and he hands you a box. And in the box is a steering wheel, brake shoes, and a tire. You say... You know, this isn't even funny. Uh, I'm not even going to laugh along with you. This is a bad joke. He said, this is what I have for you. And then you are filled with anger. You say, wait a minute. I gave you $25,000 for the whole car. I bought the whole car. I want the whole. Well, this is the best that I've got for you today. Well, if if that's what you're telling me, I'm going to my attorney because I deserve what I paid for. Let me tell you what Jesus experiences with us. We get saved and he says, purchased. And we say, I give you my Sundays sometimes. I give you every once in a while, Wednesday nights when I'm feeling real spiritual. And Lord, I give you this room and this room in the house of my soul, but this one remains padlocked. That one remains padlocked. I'm not giving you this and I'm not giving you that. Uh, We'll pray about that as we go along. And you know what he says? I paid for the whole thing. So I want the whole thing. I want all of you, not some of you, because when you give me all of you, I will give you all of me. That's lordship. You are not your own. Real quick, I'm going to tell you a quick story as I close. Kathy said, you went a little long this morning. I said, I know. Every once in a while, I have to do that if I'm going to get this over. But stay with me. It's not late. We're doing great. Watch this. You knew I was raised in a secular home. I didn't know anything about Christianity. I got saved in juvenile home when I had been arrested for sale of narcotics as a 16-year-old boy. I was looking for truth. I was looking for some kind of meaning in life. And so I was trying to self-medicate away the pain that I was experiencing. So I turned to drugs, got in trouble, got arrested, got put in juvenile home. By the third night that I was there, they came knocking on the door. and said, hey, Wickwire, you want to come hear some people talk to you about Christianity? 
I didn't even know what it was. The only thing I knew about Jesus, the only thing I knew was Jesus Christ Superstar, are you really who they say you are? And that was from listening to the radio. And that's the only way I ever even heard the name of Jesus Christ in any in-your-face way. So I went down there and I heard a preacher talk about John 3.16 and the gospel, and I gave my heart to Christ. Now, I didn't know to stay in the Bible. I didn't know to get into church. I didn't know how to develop holy habits. So I drifted after that. That's when I tried my lotus position, transcendental meditation, and got burned and stung. It's like God saying, this isn't it. (laughs) So I reached a place about two years later where I was very down. And I'm going to be honest with you and transparent with you. I looked up and said to God, if you don't do something, I'm checking out. I really did. About two weeks later, a knock came on the door. I was in a little efficiency apartment. I mean, everything was in one room. Slept on a sleeper sofa that you couldn't put a gun in my head to get me to sleep on today. It was full of bars, and I don't know how I did it. I was young. Anyway, that was my little home. And they're standing at the door of these two guys I used to go drugging with. And I looked real quick down, and they had Bibles in their hand. And I looked in their eyes, and they had that funny look, and I thought, uh-oh. I'm about to be bombarded with Jesus stuff. And they said, Jeff, what are you doing? Oh, not much. He said, listen, we're going to a Bible study this week. We'd love for you to come. It's in a house. It's not in a church. It's going to be a bunch of people just like you and me. Why don't you come? I said, great, I'll think about it. And I slammed the door as quickly as I could. And listen, when I slammed that door and turned around, God came into the house. God came into that apartment. It was like I shut the door and turned and God was in the room. And, and I knew something without hearing words. Do it before you can't do it. Go. So I said, okay. And I went. I went to this Bible study, and here's a whole bunch of Jesus people, hippies, ex-hippies, just like me, long hair, wire rim glasses, blue jeans, worshiping God, tears streaming down their face. And I became jealous. And I said, God, if you'll give me that, I'll give you everything. Dangerous prayer to pray. It was like God said, say that one more time. Wickwire. And I said, if you'll give me what I see them experiencing, I'll give you everything. Now at home, I'm going to be real honest with you. At home, I had a bag of pot. I'm being honest with you. You say, Pastor Jeff, I don't even like to picture you that way. Hey, the truth is the truth. And so I said, I'll give you anything if you'll give me what they have. And suddenly, folks, it was like the power of the Holy Spirit came upon me in a way that if I stood here an hour, I couldn't explain it to you. It was like wave after wave after wave of God's power and love washed over me like a tidal wave. It was so overwhelming. I broke away from uh, that group, went outside in the front lawn in, in East Dallas. And, and I just all I could say over and over again was, Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I, I, I finally had to say, you better stop or I'm going to die. <laughs> Do you know that a year later, I started preaching and I've never stopped. Now listen, that happened in the presence of total surrender. I'm telling you, I was being blocked until there was total surrender. When I gave him everything, he gave me everything. And it changed my life. 
Let's stand together, can we? Now, I want, I want us to do something. Please don't leave yet. If you have to leave, I'm going to have to be as little movement as possible because people are being touched right now. And we're going to have a moment of surrender. I'm going to ask you to lift your hands up towards the Lord. You may not be used to doing this, but the Bible says lifting up holy hands. I want you to think with your hands lifted. Has Is there anything in my life blocking me from total surrender? Is there anything there? A person? A place? A thing? A habit? Is anything blocking me from total surrender? Now please realize with your hands lifted, whatever it is, it's not worth it. I went home that night and I flushed that bag of marijuana so fast. It was so easy to do and freed from it ever since. It meant nothing to me once I experienced the love of God. Now, I want you to seriously consider right now surrendering whatever it is blocking you from the Lordship of Christ. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. We know, Lord, that when we finally surrender, that is when you pour out the best you've got. And we ask you, Lord, in Jesus' name, pour out the mighty Holy Spirit upon this congregation as we yield to you and surrender to you Lord, may the Holy Spirit just take control and fill every crevice, every nook and cranny, every room in our soul, every room that's been locked up and padlocked and kept God away from, uh, kept away from God, that that room would be open and the sun would shine and the life of Jesus would pour in to that area where we have not been surrendered. We ask you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Now pray with me and say, Lord, I surrender anything that stands in the way of lordship in my life. And we're going to sing one stanza of I surrender all.